Hi, my name is Ari Stein and I'm the founding editor of 52 Insights. This week, our cover feature star is none other than the political advisor and author of the recently released book, Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse, What You Urgently Need to Know by Nina Schick. Nina is a resident of London and a political commentator and advisor. She specialises in how technology is reshaping politics in the 21st century. She's consulted with global leaders including Joe Biden and Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the former Secretary General of NATO. She's also worked at the heart of historic campaigns including the Brexit referendum and with Emmanuel Macron. Something we don't normally do, we feel this topic is so vital to the foundation of all democracies that we wanted to share with you the full unabridged version of this interview in audio format. An alarming interview, we discuss the powerful and sinister nature of deep fakes, what the unimaginable consequences could be if this tool falls into the wrong hands, and why we need to be vigilant as a society when facing this information crisis. Let us know what you think by writing to us on social media or emailing us at info at 52-insights.com. Enjoy. Maybe just talk about your background. You have a really uh, impressive credentials and a high pedigree working um, in some political circles. How you found yourself writing a book on deep fakes and the infopocalypse? <laughs> right, sure. Um, so I'm a political geek through and through. Um, I've been working in politics for the last 10 years, for almost like last decade. I'm actually half German and half Nepalese. But um, I moved to the UK for university and have been here ever since. Um, I started by working in Westminster at an EU policy think tank. And, you know, these issues that I was covering then, uh, the crises rocking the Eurozone crisis, the troubles that Europe had at the edge of its neighborhood with Russia, the subsequent kind of invasion of eastern Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea, the EU's migrant crisis, followed by Brexit in 2016, followed by Donald Trump's election to the White House in 2017, followed by Emmanuel Macron's um, victory in the Elysee in France in 2017. And by 2018, I was essentially um, working for Anders Fogh Rasmussen, who was the former Secretary General, is the former Secretary General of NATO. And I was advising him on election interference, because we had been very kind of awakened to what had happened um, in the United States in 2016. But given what the other events I just recalled that I'd been working on in Europe from even before then, we had been kind of at the forefront of Russian interference and Russian disinformation and seeing how information warfare was evolving as a weapon of 21st century war, as well as a tool of geopolitics, right? So that's how I ended up working with Anders. And at the time, he had covened this group of global leaders to try and take a transatlantic approach to election interference, especially when it came to foreign forces like Russia, and try to safeguard elections from foreign election interference in the future. My role was kind of to look at evolving threats. And my area of interest was always at the nexus of technology and politics, right? Because all of these huge seismic political events that I'd been working on and witnessed, um, I realized how much they were being influenced by 
um, the exponential changes in technology that were impacting not only society, but politics as well. So that's when I came across deepfakes, because I came across them when I first, when they first emerged at the end of 2017 in Reddit. Um, and I immediately realized the power of uh, synthetic media when it was used maliciously, right? So I want to preface this entire conversation by saying I'm not a technophobe. <laughs> I, I, I don't think like these technological advances are inherently bad. Technology is just an amplifier of human intention. And I know that there'll be many amazing, creative, wonderful use cases for synthetic media in um, content production, in the democratization of content production, video production. But I was, of course, immediately concerned about the negative use cases, of which there will be many. And I saw when they emerged in Reddit that this is um, a tremendously powerful tool that can and will be used for disinformation, because I had been working in disinformation for the past kind of six, seven years. So that's when I told these leaders, like, we have to, we have to do something about deepfakes. This is an emerging threat. The age of information has, you know, also become the age of disinformation, and I see this as the next evolving threat. So I was advising this group of leaders on deepfakes and started working with a really interesting AI company in London. Um, they're called Faculty to try and come up, well, to try and develop the AI software to detect deepfakes and very, excuse me, and very quickly found that um, the nature in terms of detection, right, in building a tech solution was always going to be adversarial because of the nature of the way that deepfakes were created. So no matter if you build, you know, the detector, you're always going to have a generator which can beat the detector. And then there's a philosophical question or a te technical right. question as, as to whether or not there comes an end point where you have a generator that's so good that even a detector can't find it. So I just dipped my toe in to the kind of technical side of it mm. by working with an AI company, but then, you know, very quickly came to the realization, as is so true with all disinformation, you can have tech solutions and there have to be tech solutions, but that's only one part of the answer. The bigger and more difficult part of the answer and the solution is societal, because as I already said, inherently, this is not a question about technology, this is a question about humans. And the only way to safeguard against this kind of um, risk of more and more potent disinformation is through inoculation, first of all. So I see that as the first line of defense, which is why I wrote the book, just to contextualize all the kind of, I don't know if you have, have had a chance to read it, but uh -huh. you know, everything, yeah. oh, brilliant, you know, how it ranges from geopolitics to domestic politics, to mm. our private lives, and also, um, you know, is something that affects every business, every enterprise, every company. So as soon as you realize that our information, this is not about Russian interference, this is not just about non-consensual pornography, this is not just about Donald Trump, it is about all of those things, but all of those things are happening because we exist in this information ecosystem, which has become increasingly corrupt and untrustworthy and dangerous. And the deepfake threat is just the next evolving threat yeah. in it. So 
the bigger the, and at the uh, end point, I know I've gone on a big kind of ramble here, but the end point mm-hmm. is really that you need society wide mobilization to start to build a more secure information um, ecosystem. And understanding is the first point, and that's why I wrote the book. Wonderful. I feel like we can just wrap up the interview now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you gave a very comprehensive, well-rounded answer. I guess the thing that comes at me um, kind of spontaneously, so this kind of wasn't a part of my question, but this is something I couldn't resist the urge in asking, is that the idea of propaganda isn't something new. I mean, it goes back to Stalin. It goes back to Julius Caesar. I mean, it goes back, you know, to protagonists who... As, as the famous saying, you know, history is written by the winners, and so true that is sometimes. And I think about propaganda within this paradigm shift, it doesn't feel that different. If we were to take a much more civilizational threat, a nihilistic kind of approach, it definitely is. But in terms of propaganda, talk to me about how particularly different this threat is. Okay, well, this I absolutely agree with your starting premise that the idea of bad information or disinformation, misinformation is as old, you know, goes on from time immemorial. It's been something that has been with us since the start of human civilization. Um, it has been a mode of human communication, bad information as soon as we were kind of, you know, etching um, animals on, on cave walls. So. It is an inherently human phenomenon that there is going to be misinformation, disinformation, bad information, propaganda. It's just a inherent part of human communication, civilization, and society. The reason why I say it's different is um, twofold. So firstly, if you look at the kind of big technological changes that have Uh, transformed our information ecosystem, Um, there usually is a little bit of time for society. By the way, they've always transformed the course of human history. So when you look at the invention of the printing press, right, which arguably in the last kind of thousand years is the most important technological revolution in human communication before we hit the 20th century, if you look at the printing press, you know, had that not been invented, then you wouldn't have had the Reformation, and everything else that happened after the invention of the printing press. But then from the printing press to the invention of photography, you had 400 years. So society was able to kind of keep up with the challenges and kind of start to adapt to these big, big changes that were completely transforming our information ecosystem. But if you look at what's happened in the age of information, so I'm talking the advent of the internet, Um, the advent of the smartphone and the advent of social media, all which have happened in the last 30 years, it hasn't taken very long for the age of information to become the age of disinformation in the sense that, yes, misinformation and disinformation have always existed, but never at this scale. And what's more, never in one ecosystem that's united the whole world. I'm half Nepalese, right? Um, I grew up in Kathmandu, a country where there is still a very high rate of illiteracy. And now when I go back to Nepal and I go to my mother's village, people may not be able to read and write, 
but they are connect connected into this information ecosystem via a smartphone. Everyone has a smartphone. Everyone can access the internet. I think it's going to be 70% of the world's population in the next two years. In this information ecosystem, the most powerful medium of communication, just because of the way that our brain processes information, where we can process information that's visual far, 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 far faster than any kind of text, video has become the most important medium of communication. And what's happening now is there is a video, there is a video revolution taking place because we're not all just consumers of video, right? Including people who are in Nepal, who aren't able to read and write, but they can consume video online through the internet. But we're all becoming producers of video too. We're all making our own videos and we're uploading them and we're putting them online. So everyone is becoming a producer of video as well as a consumer of video. We have this one information ecosystem where video has become the most important. We've already seen that all of the advances that have led to this ecosystem in the last 30 years, the internet, smartphone, social media, is something that society still hasn't quite managed to deal with in terms of its uh, negative manifestations, right? We all thought this would be a utopia, but quickly mm -hmm. seen its darker side. And just now, we're already struggling. Just now, we're getting in the technology where video as a medium of communication can be subverted, right? It can be subverted by AI. And what's more is that it democratizes that. So you're putting the what would have been the exclusive domain of Hollywood studio or a state, somebody with an incredible amount of resources only four years ago, right? Some of these video creations that um, AI is going to be able to do in the next five years, if not already, is something that you would have needed multi-million dollar budget for and a team of special effects artists and anybody will be able to do it to the point where some of the kind of synthetic media experts who I speak to who are immensely excited about synthetic media because they see uh, all the positive use cases for content creation, um, they think that within the next, I don't know, five to seven years, any YouTuber will have the same kind of power that a Hollywood studio has now. So. I find that terrifying because not only has video become the most important medium of communication, but also you have democratized the ability to completely manipulate video. And of course there are going to be negative use cases for that because the past 10 years, when the age, because in the past 10 years when all of these uh, huge technological advances have changed our information ecosystem so quickly to the extent where society just has not been able to keep up, is society ready for this? And my, where I sit on this is, no, it isn't ready. And the only way we can make it ready is by talking about it. So it's different, again, just to reiterate why, it's different because it democratizes um, disinformation creation at a scale that we've never seen before. It does it with the most powerful medium of communication yeah. that is known in the history of humanity, I'm talking about yeah. video, and it does it at a time when we're already struggling to deal with the changes that have happened in the last 30 years. So that's why it's yeah. different. So you say in the book that um, we're about, or you paraphrase some data scientists who believe that we're five to seven years away from artificial intelligence. 
being able to perfectly generate all forms of synthetic media for commercial purposes. Mm-hmm. You know, my and, most and immediate... Sorry? Sorry? Sorry, please continue. My most immediate concern was as, as incredibly dangerous and existentially threatening this is, we need to think of a way to challenge these forces. We need to think of technology that can play defense just as much as offense. There must be a way for us to mitigate the damage that is, that is being created. I mean, you did discuss one potential technology, which is blockchain, but as a larger whole and the people you've been talking to, what is the general consensus about how we can fight this looming tipping point you discussed? So the first comment I would make is that um, to a certain extent, the point at which the synthetic media generation is absolutely perfect is a moot point, right? We know it's coming. Uh, Data scientists think it's within the next decade, but the important point is that it's going to happen. But it's a red herring to the extent that you don't even need it to be perfect for it to be effective. Right. And we've seen right. that in the last 10 years where you have kind of the forebear of deep fakes, um, which is something that I call cheap fakes, which is manipulated media that's got no kind of AI in them. They can be pretty unsophisticated, right. already caused a tremendous amount of damage. So I just want to say that first, like it doesn't even need to be perfect for it to be effective. Um, but then the second point, which is a really important question, is um, how do we start defending society against it? And I think the first thing, again, is understanding and recognition that this, the age of information, which was hailed as a utopia in kind of the evolution of humanity, human civilization, human existence, has had amazing, amazing um, manifestations, but also it is not simply utopia. There are uh, there is a downside to the age of information. So we have to kind of recognize that there isn't going to be one silver bullet answer. It is literally about rebuilding society in a way where we can make our information ecosystem um, a safer place in the age of information so it doesn't become the age of disinformation. When you start to drill down into what does that look like, um, it'd be very encouraging for any readers to know that, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting has already started. There are amazing people who have been working in this kind of area um, for even longer than me um, who are tackling the problem from all sides, right? And I think the most important thing that we need to recognize is that there is no one body, no one organization nor one sector that can fix it. It needs a networked approach. And I think Mm -hmm. the viability of that networked approach only starts when the viability of the network approach is that you need buy-in. And you need buy-in from many different people who approach the the problem from many different sides. And I think you only start getting that buy-in when you start to recognize how important this challenge is for humanity, right? As long as it's not seen as a priority or as long as there is no buy-in that the entire information ecosystem is something that's corruptible, it's not going to happen. And I think we're starting to get to that tipping point now where where the buy-in is starting to come. So you need tech. You need tech on board. You need the whole tech community on board. You need government, yes, but I'm 
hesitant to say that this is a problem that can be regulated out of existence. You know, I don't think that taking an approach, which, for example, some countries have done, um, you've seen South Korea just ban deepfakes as well as China. You know, China's banned deepfakes, but that becomes a very slippery slope to go down, right? For Take the case of China. So if the Chinese government has the power to say what media is authentic or not, then you set a very dangerous precedent. But you, you do need policymakers and regulators working on it. And you also need civil society. And a lot of the incredible people who I spoke to, who I interviewed for the book, you know, they're coming at it from various different angles. So, you know, for example, there is Witness, which is a human rights organization, which has been operating in the global south for many years, teaching activists and human rights um, organizations how to use video as a way of uh, documenting human rights abuses and holding those in power to account. Now, they recognize that with the emergence of deep fakes, you basically, if any kind of media can be decried as being fake, even if it's not, then the very kind of fragile consensus in some parts of the world where you're documenting uh, human rights abuses through video, then that's completely destroyed, right? So you need to work with these kind of human rights activists as well, um, civil society, and fundamentally, as I say, you, you need to take a networked approach. But what I will say is that there is also there are also technical solutions. And this is where some really interesting work is being done because at first when um, deepfakes started merging, or I should say synthetic media, because I my definition for deepfake is only when it's used in a malicious way. I think it's really important to distinguish between deepfake and synthetic media because the mm. intent matters, right? And I don't want to, if you just say all synthetic media is bad, um, I, I don't think that distinguishes between the negative and positive use cases. So I basically yeah. use deepfake as the negative case and synthetic media as, as the phenomenon. So anyway, when synthetic media started um, emerging because it was so exciting, you just had more research on the generation side, right? Um, but now, since it's first started emerging about two, two and a half, three years ago, more and more people are interested also in the detection side. So there's loads of stuff going on in terms of um, the technical solutions. But again, as I already mentioned at the, at the top of the interview, there is a question as to whether the technical solutions can keep, there will be a point where any detection could be beat by a generator. And that's, yeah. that's just like a, an open question for the AI research community. And there's also, Sorry, and finally, just with regards to kind of what I was saying about the networked approach that society needs to take, you're already starting to see that happen. So there was an, uh, there's an incredible initiative. Um, it's called the Content Authenticity Initiative. It was launched by Adobe. It's got loads of buy-in from Twitter, uh, companies like TruePic. TruePic is a company that works on building... Um, so into the hardware of your phone or device when you record or take a video to make that incorruptible. So any kind of media, if it's, if it's, you can prove its um, provenance. So there are already initiatives like this 
underway. And I imagine that as this problem becomes more articulated and there's more buy-in as people start to see that this is really something that's yeah. interconnected, we will see yeah. more and more of these kind of like networked approaches, which is the only way in the end. So my personal take on that is that the technology that we need in order to detect provenance and um, corruptibility, it hasn't arrived yet. And the legitimacy yeah. and the quality of it will, and it will, it's like that famous saying, you know, the future is lying on the desk of a research paper somewhere or something like that. And um, I really do believe that. But going back a bit, I want to talk a little bit about, I think, who's really accountable here. I mean, we talk about Donald, um, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin sowing the seeds of chaos. You talk about that quite extensively in your book. Um, but I, I actually want to talk about the architects who have built these so-called so seeds of chaos. I interviewed the founder of Reddit a couple of years ago, and when I pressed him on his thoughts about his platform contributing to getting Donald Trump elected, he downplayed the platform's effectiveness. Now, you yourself have called Reddit ground zero in, in, yeah. in so many ways. We're watching the antitrust hearings play out at the moment, and in fact, I would go as far to say Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and um, you know founders of Instagram and so decades from now might be viewed as the real villains and the people that set up the railroads and the networks that allowed us to get to the systemic, um, yeah. you know, uh, really apocalyptic point that we're at. I want to ask you how accountable at a policy level and at a more cultural level should we be making tech giants um, for their distribution network because ultimately that's what it is. It's the distribution network um, for their inevitable collusion in all this. Um, yeah. So I agree with you that they are accountable and they bear responsibility, right? But I do think that when they started building their platform, so whether you're the, the founder of Reddit or Zuckerberg or Dorsey, um, they genuinely set out, I think, with good intentions, right? But this, again, is the problem, I think, when it has come, this is the, strikes at the heart of the fundamental problem when it comes to the exponential kind of technological advances of the last, of the information age. A lot of the founders have this utopian vision, and then when it very quickly turns out that there is a negative side to it, you know, they're like, well, it's not what we wanted, it's not how we imagined it, and we bear no responsibility. But of course they bear responsibility because they are a new kind of class of people who, I mean, look at Zuckerberg, for example. He has more power than most global leaders, right? Or arguably he is even, there is no global leader who is more powerful than him if you look at how many people are on Facebook and kind of Facebook's reach, right? Wh which country in the world is more powerful than all the users on Facebook? If you consider how geographically spread they are, uh, <laughs> how many languages, what they do. So of course they bear responsibility, especially because they're these new sky on the power. And especially I think once again, 
if you subscribe to um, the view that we hold in Western democracies, that there is no power without accountability, right? We, we, don't, we don't want to have a tin pot dictator. If we don't like our political leader, I mean, we, we hate Trump, but if you hate Trump, you can go to the ballot booth um, come November and you can vote him out, right? Same in the UK, same in Stockholm, same in every Western liberal democracy. Whereas, of course, with these guys, they have so much power, more than any kind of political leader, and they're completely unaccountable to us. They're only accountable to their shareholders. So I don't buy at all the argument that um, they would make that they are simply creators of technology, um, that they have no responsibility because they do. Uh, they have made... They're not impartial. They're not impartial, and their inventions have completely changed the trajectory of human history and society and politics in a way that we haven't even begun to understand yet. So I think you're right when you say that there might come a point in the future where, you know, these guys are seen as the villains. Um, if you look at history, there have always been... So if you, if you take the Gilded Era at the, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, where you had these barons in the United States who monopolized all the new industries at the time, right? Um, railroads, steam, coal. Eventually what happened is those monopolies were broken up and the Gilded Era um, was regulated by policymakers. So I think something like that needs to happen with the big tech companies. I don't think, again, that technology is the source of evil here because technology is simply, again, a driver of human intention. But I think it's the monopoly, which is really the problem. And the fact, I, and, and this time it's different because the power that these technology companies have is our personal data, right? So it, there's a new twist to how much power these people have because they know everything there is to know about us in our most private and intimate lives. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting one, which we're going to see playing out over the next few years. I, it looks like Europe and the U.S. have a, kind of taken a different approach. So like in Europe, the Internet model seems to be more, much more focused on consumer privacy. Uh, in the United States, it seems to be much more about these profitable big tech companies. And of course, then there's China, where it's the state who's got its tenterhook into these big tech companies. Mm. Um, they should absolutely be held accountable, though. So I, I want to talk a little bit about um, this idea of reality, because that's where I think deep fakes strike right at the heart of it. And it's interesting you talk about the good side of it being synthetic media and the, the kind of villainous side being deep fakes. I like that. Um, I want to kind of understand the idea of reality itself is what defects really threaten. Um, and I think a lot of what you discuss in your book is really centered around a shared understanding of what constitutes reality. Objectively speaking, in, in a democracy, we all agree somewhat to our shared framework um, or our idea of what makes the facts or the relative reality that we live in. But defects really threaten that, um, this disillusionment, this disinformation. Adam Curtis, the documentary, has done some brilliant work around this. Maybe you could discuss a little bit about um, this idea of 
reality and what deep fakes potentially can do by subverting that if it is successful? Yeah, I mean, it's a brilliant question. And I suppose you could get very, very philosophical about it. You know, I mean, if you took like a Buddhist kind of approach, you'd be like, what is reality? Reality is nothing but your perception. <laughs> but for the interest of um, this conversation, and in, indeed for the interest of thinking about a society and a country and a democracy that works, you absolutely need to have some basis of objectivity so that you can debate the facts, come to a consensus, and then agree and move society forward in that way. Um, the problem with deepfakes is that they erode away the consensus, any kind of notion of coming to a consensus on an agreed or objective set of facts. And this has already been happening in our debates, uh, political debate in the last few years, even before the emergence of deepfakes, right? Um, you've, already seen, you've already seen this happen. So deepfakes is going to take that one step further. And it happens on both sides of the coin. So what I mean by that is if defects give everyone the power to fake everything, right? And I, I say everyone because it democratizes the ability to create fake content of anyone saying or doing anything. And we've already kind of discussed that. So we recognize that risk. But the flip side, which we haven't talked about yet, is that if everything can be faked, then everyone has plausible deniability. And that is, I actually, I think, even before deepfakes become ubiquitous in their most kind of malicious use case in politics, even though we started seeing the first kind of political deepfakes, I think that's the first impact we're going to see on politics, even before deepfakes become ubiquitous. And that is people denying something that's real, uh, that's documented on video as evidence and calling it a deepfake. One place where you already see this happening, um, and again, and here I'm talking about the Western democratic world, is from arguably the most important person in the Western democratic world, because he's the leader of the United States, Donald Trump himself. In 2016, when you may re recall the video emerged, um, the Access Hollywood kind of video emerged of him grabbing, uh, bragging of grabbing women by the pussy. At the time, he had to apologize for that video. And, you know, he rolled out Ivanka and uh, they, they, he churlishly apologized, calling it uh. locker room. And people at the time thought that would derail his presidential bid. Um, surprisingly, it didn't. But, you know, he still admitted that he had done it and he apologized. And, you know, that's very not like Donald Trump, because he usually doesn't apologize for anything he says or does. Now, if that video were to emerge today, he would just dismiss it as a fake. And it's very interesting because in subsequent interviews, when that video has come out after 2016, that's exactly what he's done. Um, I saw it, another instance of that this year when, um, let's talk about uh, the George Floyd protest. I mean, when, when the video of George Floyd came out, uh, the, the horrific video, I mean, I, I, I literally still haven't watched it because I think it's too appalling. I don't think I could sit yeah, there too. and watch a whole eight minutes of, you know, somebody begging for his life before, before he suffocated to death. But... I understand how powerful that video was and many people did watch it and the 
the history of race relations and police brutality had been you know, boiling up for so long in the United States that it basically led to mass protests, civil unrest, not only in the United States, but across the world, right? So this was the video that sparked a global movement on police brutality and racial, racial justice, uh, civil liberties. But I came across a African-American woman who is standing as a candidate for Senate um, for the Republican Party. And she has written an entire paper and uses her platform on Twitter, her following on YouTube to make the argument that the entire George Floyd video is a deep fake. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. She's still quite fringe, right? Her 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 platform is still quite small. So that mm. narrative hasn't been amplified beyond, you know, the people who are following her and people like myself who are, who are looking for evidence of, because um, I knew this was going to happen and I wrote it in my book. I said, you know, it's only a matter of time before something like this will be denied. But the point is that when the fake media becomes ubiquitous, it increases something. So this is called the liar's dividend where anything can be dismissed as fake. So the video that caused a global movement for racial justice, if this had come out in 2024 or 2028, you know, you might have actually seen a counter movement or you probably will see in future a counter movement of people saying, well, this is just lefty disinformation. This is BS and this video is a complete fake. We know it's a deep fake. So even before you have deepfakes disrupting society because there's actual deepfakes. You already have the mere existence of deepfakes um, amplifying the liar's dividend, which is already having a concrete impact on society now. So again, this shows you how like from both sides of the coin, something as powerful as synthetic, well, deepfakes, not synthetic media, can um, erode the notion of any kind of shared reality, any objectivity. And yeah. that really hits at the heart of our societies. And when I say ours, I'm talking about the West, our liberal democratic tradition. And the one thing I will say to, to the readers and um, people who are following this interview is that that is not something that's to be taken for granted. And I know that because I'm half Nepalese and I grew up in a part of the world where really the state has failed and liberal democracy doesn't exist. So sometimes it seems that these values that we hold, they're immutable, that they are permanent, that nobody could take them away, you know, the kind of way in which we live our lives and our society. And, and, and that is simply not true. And what's really interesting, again, the last point I'll make on this when it comes to reality and shared objectivity and truth and how central and fundamental that is to our Western way of life in liberal democracies is that you see the counterbalance to that in, in, in Russia, right? In Putin's Russia, where the society, well, he has become so cynical, society is completely ruled by disinformation where nothing is true and anything is possible. If you basically cross the Rubicon and you believe that, you know, um, everything's all nonsense anyway, and there's no point in trying to have a shared truth or an objective reality because uh, 
there isn't one and society is too polarized and you cross into kind of the same territory of politics as you see in Russia where everything becomes about a never-ending game of information warfare because if, if there is no reality and there's no truth then reality or truth or what happens is just decided by who wins the information warfare who, who wins the info war on that argument and I don't think that that is a bridge that we want to cross as um, liberal democracy because we still want to live in a society where we do have some kind of objective basis for truth, reasoning, and facts. And really, that's that. That's what's at stake here, is what I think. It's interesting because I'm thinking about that kind of Molotov cocktail where you have huge, um, you know, parts of the population in what you would call areas of common sense and logic but completely corrupted um, and a lot of people that have become quite fragile and vulnerable um, at a time when you didn't think they were and staring down the barrel we're looking at a November election where Donald Trump um, wants to remain the incumbent president. I think I'm trying to think of all the tactics you know, Russia is going to employ, and that we've already started to notice. Um, the message that's been sent by Western media is that Donald Trump has created this brotherhood with, with Vladimir Putin. I'm just wondering, um, will this November election be the first election where Donald Trump is employed directly or indirectly by the deployment? and usage um, of dissonance um, and I'm not just talking about you know 11 million ads on Facebook but real um, calibrated dissonance you know a way to really divide the mm. global uh, voting population and we talk about Donald Trump a lot because he is you know a lot of what we do depends on what America does in that way I'm just wondering where you think this all heads around yeah. the November election. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think uh, I have a whole chapter in my book about um, the November election, Trump, and um, precisely for that reason, because what happens in the United States really matters to the rest of the Western world. And I, and I know that, you know, I'm a European and I'm half German and, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, well, no, we've fallen out of America and our way of life, it doesn't matter what happens in the United States um, because we're going to be European or we're going to be Australian and we, we, we know our liberal values and we hold them true. But if you look at it from a bigger geopolitical context, uh, like I was saying, the kind of Western liberal democratic tradition is not something that we can take for granted. And when you look at all the kind of rogue and authoritarian alternative models that seem increasingly to be coming to the fore and being emboldened, you have to understand that, you know, the Western liberal democratic tradition only stays void and strong in the world when the entire West is united. And by that, I mean Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and of course the United States. So what happens in the United States absolutely matters for the rest of the Western world. And um, again, what's really interesting about that is that there absolutely is foreign interference underway 
in these 2020 elections. I track a little bit about how Russian disinformation has become increasingly sophisticated in basically this new age of disinformation. Their tactics may be the same. They're the same as when they were as what they were in the Soviet era during the Cold War, uh, which is to kind of divide the United States and the West from within. However, because of new technology and how quickly our information ecosystem has transformed in the last few decades, their methods have become far more potent. And in the book, I kind of track how, for example, in the 1980s, the Soviets started the lie that um, the CIA had invented HIV AIDS in order to kill African-American people. They called it Operation Infection because they knew hitting at racial relations in the United States was a sure way to hurt the U.S., right? Because you, you divide the American populace by spreading this malicious lie that you know the, the, the American government wants to kill black people. In the 80s, that took a decade to go viral, but it went viral uh, from being printed in various newspapers around the world and then amplified by Russian broadcasters to the extent where at the end of the decade, um, 80 newspapers in the world have kind of repeated this lie. And that belief persists in American society to this day. So there is a disproportionate number of people in the African-American community who still believe that AIDS was created as a biological weapon to kill black people. That has had a real impact on people's lives because, again, the black community is disproportionately affected by HIV AIDS. They have higher rates of occurrence. And you actually have public health experts saying how there's a problem with people coming in, wanting to come in for treatment because they believe that uh, they might be being experimented on by the government. That was something that happened in the 80s. But in 2016, what you saw because of these new kind of these new, uh, the evolution of our information ecosystem, right? Social media, uh, smartphones, Internet is that they were able to launch influence operations right in America from a troll farm in St. Petersburg to infiltrate American society. And what they did in 2016 was really interesting. I mean, just from, I mean, if you take, if you take the ethics out of it and you just look at what the Rush, well, they're called the Internet Research Agency of Russia, did to political debate in America, I mean, it's fascinating. So they, what they did was, and they did it over years, by the way. They started in 2013 and were moving up to the 2016 election. So it wasn't just something they put together in the last minute. What they did was um, infiltrate political conversation and public life by posing as legitimate groups of Americans on social media. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, contrary to common belief that, you know, they just kind of agitated on the right and riled up Trump supporters. That's not at all what they did. They built communities across the political spectrum. Um, and the whole aim was to intensify identity politics. And what they did was build these communities. So far on the right, it could be like gun owners or Texas secessionists. On the left, it could be mm, gay and black, Latino you know, so these, these various communities, and they filled them with feelings of pride in their identity, you know, being making them feel really, really proud and who they were. And then as they got closer to the election, 
started injecting messages of political grievance into these communities. And again, the number one community who they targeted was the African-American community. And they, as we started going closer to the election, what they did was say things like, well, in all these groups that created online, well, we shouldn't vote in this election because um, Hillary Clinton uh, doesn't care for African-American people. Um, obviously, neither does Trump, but this is a white person's election, so we mm. should put this one out. And it, to make sure that the black vote did not turn out, because traditionally the black vote has always gone down. And they also did things like uh, run social media influence campaigns, yes, in favor of Trump, but also in favor of Bernie Sanders. So again, agitating on both sides of the spectrum, left and right, the purpose being to cause chaos, to cause division, to cause fraction within Western democratic society. So there is no ability to come to any consensus because when we're completely divided within our own society, then we can't see the enemy at the gates. In 2020, this kind of social media influence operation has not only been becoming more sophisticated. So for example, in 2016, they were doing it from their troll farms in St. Petersburg. But in 2020, what the IRA, the, the Internet Research Agency of Russia has been doing is setting up human rights NGOs in Africa, um, employing people who believe they are working for those human rights NGOs. And then they are just hired to post um, social media content all day. And actually what they're doing is the influence operations that they did in 2016. Again, building identity, trying to cause divisiveness in um, the United States. But this time, mm. they're hiring people in Ghana to do it and pretending that it's an NGO. So some of the people that were posting their social media content in Ghana, literally using the same means and the same content that went viral in 2016, have no idea that what they're actually doing is working for the Russians. So they're becoming much more sophisticated. And the other point that's very interesting is that other countries around the world who have a stake in making sure that the West, uh, the Western alliances fragments at that Western democracy is no longer seen as, you know, the, the, the kind of be all and end all when it comes to ideal form of governance. I'm talking about countries like China, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. They're increasingly starting to adopt or try to adopt the kind of same influence operations that the Russians have done. But there are magnitudes, it's an order of magnitude in what the Russians do, highly, highly sophisticated, to kind of like what um, the Qataris may do. Um, so yeah. there's first of all that around 2020, which is that the foreign interference is happening, it's getting more sophisticated, and there are more players trying to do it. Um, but Nina, I think it's so important to have your passion within the... Uh, the gladiator's ring, so to speak, and um, I think you share a lot of really important information that I think uh, many people, including our informed readers, a lot of our readers already know about a lot of this, um, should, should really know. I, 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 uh, I fear to think that many of the people that need to know this type of information, A, will be quite apathetic, B, um, just won't this kind of information won't get to them and C will be simply, um, you know, corrupted. And so that's the fight we're up against. I had many more questions, but unfortunately we've reached 
the end of our interview. I, I really thank you for your time, Nina. Thank you. No, real pleasure, Ari.